There we go. Thought I was on, but I guess not. Thanks for turning me way up. Now it sounds like I have a booming voice. All right, good news is that's on the screen, so the people that couldn't hear me online can now see it on the screen. That's great. All right, any thoughts that anybody would like to share? Quaid's back there if you have thoughts. I know this one took, you know, you, do, you weren't prepared for this question at all. Okay, should we just dive right into it? All right, let's just dive right into it. So the answer to the question is he did create us to worship him. I suppose you could say it this way, God created us um, from love. He didn't have to create us, he didn't need us, but he created us from his love and created us to love him and to love each other. And for a short time in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to do just that. They were able to love God and love each other until sin came into the world. And, and so I understand where the question is coming from and it's actually a very good question. If a human being would say, you all need to worship me, uh, that would sound quite arrogant, conceited. People would be frustrated by that. I don't know about you, but one of the things that, one of the characteristics that I personally struggle with in other people is excessive arrogance. So I think I understand where the question's coming from. It seems like God is saying, uh, you all need to worship me. But if you stop and think about it, he's the one being that has every right to ask people to do that. He's the creator. He's the one who made all things. There's only one. There's only one like God. Nobody else can live up to him. Everybody else is just a pretender. So I, I, I just kind of wrote down a couple of Bible passages that I thought were appropriate. Acts 17, uh, the Apostle Paul says this as he's speaking before the Areopagus in Athens. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And so again, I understand the question, I understand where it's coming from, but if there's one being in this world that actually deserves all praise, it's God. And then if you think of it in these terms, he didn't need to make us, he did it just as much for us as he did for him. But then I think you can take it even one step further. When Adam and Eve ruined the perfect world that God had created, it seems as if God were doing things only for himself, wouldn't he have just wiped them out and started over or said, well, that wasn't worth it, failed experiment? But you know what he did instead? He sent his only son, promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head and sent Jesus to do just that. And, and in that, I think we see the selflessness of God's love, even though he wants us to worship him, there is a love for us that goes beyond anything that we can even comprehend. I don't know, hopefully that makes some sense. There's literally hundreds of Bible passages that talk about God being worthy of our praise because of who he is and what he has done for us. So a little bit different because any human being who wants people to worship them uh, is not God, but, but God is the only being who deserves all worship and praise. All right, any follow-up on that? Anybody want to ask any further questions? If not, we'll move on to question number two. How can we actively see God in our daily lives, especially in times of suffering? How appropriate that Kyle and Delaney just sang the song, Blessings, from Laura's story. That those words are, are great because... It seems as if suffering would be the last thing that God would want and the last thing that he would work through uh, to bring us blessings. 
So what do you do? I'm going to throw that out to you guys first because some of you have you've wrestled with this, you've grappled with this a little bit. How do you actively see God in your daily life? What, what, are, what, is, what are some things that you might be able to suggest to others? Anything that comes to your mind when you think about that? Actively seeking or actively seeing God in daily lives? I got one right there. That's Abby. I have my glasses on so I can't see that far. Abby. My cheaters. Um, I think a really good place to look is just nature. For example, mm-hmm. we're in spring and like seeing everything just turn green. It's yeah. like that wouldn't be possible without God creating it. Um, another thing is personally, like I've gone through my own times of suffering and like the small acts that other people have done for me just to like ask how I'm doing or yeah. someone like unexpectedly holds the door open for you. Like those small things, they add up and I think that those are acts of God in our daily lives. Yeah, I like that. Looking around in the world, nature, right? Um, I praise you. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Kira, go ahead. So I helped out with our vacation Bible school um, several years ago. And one thing we did every day was we ended the day with, we called them God sightings. Mm -hmm. And it was just anything in the day that you saw God in. And some of the things that these little kids said was just amazing how they just saw God in every little thing. So kind of having that childlike faith and just taking the little things and seeing how God is in them. Yeah, seeing God in, even in the little things. That's great. Delaney, please. I think in the midst of the suffering time specifically, it's not always easy to focus on that in the moment, but you can reflect on how God's worked in your life in the past and be reminded of his promises and how they've been fulfilled more of as a reflection rather than like a active seeing if you're really, really, really struggling with that in the moment. Good. I just jotted a couple things down. I, I said, I started with, I think there's a lost art and it, it partly is one of the big, in my opinion, one of the big lies of Satan, one of the big things that he's done to trip us up is just made our lives so busy. And I know that you guys know that because right now you're just a couple of days away from semester finals and things like that. But he's, he, he's pushed us to forget how important it is just to stop and think. The Bible uses the word meditate. And I think sometimes we get the wrong idea of meditate because maybe you think, you know, you got to, you know, that's, meditate just means keeping something in your mind, thinking about it, dwelling on it, being able to reflect on it like all day long. And Psalm 1 is just a beautiful psalm to think about that. Um, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, stand in, the seat of, uh, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And, and the idea is don't let God get too far away from you. And, and, and it, it, is it possible that we kind of compartmentalize our lives sometimes? Well, there's things that happen on Sunday morning, but maybe Sunday morning just kind of is forgotten when Monday comes and it's really busy and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And the more times you can stop and just say, and I love the suggestions of seeing God in the little things or in nature, uh, anytime you can stop and just say, okay, remember who it is that I worship, who it is that, that loves me, who it is that has sent his son to die for me. I think those kind of things. And then listening to Jesus' invitation. And, and keep this one close to you because this is the, this is the answer to the suffering. When, when those bad times come, when those frustrating times come, here's your Savior's own words to you. Come, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take, your, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. I find it amazing that when you think about a yoke, it's supposed to link two things together, right, so that they work in tandem. But, but Jesus says that yoke that, that we share with him, it's not us doing the lifting because uh, it's easy and his burden is light because Jesus is doing the carrying of that burden. So listen to that invitation from your Savior. All right, let's move on to number three. Kind of a double here. There's two different questions that kind of came at the same, uh, the same thing. So how old is the earth? Is it valid to say the earth is as old as some people say? Millions of years or is it a hard no? And then kind of along the same lines, a little different question. Why was Jesus born so late when humanity was around for a million years? What happened with humans born before Jesus? So there's a whole bunch of different layers here. But I'm going to simply start with this. There are two places that you can get your truth about the origin of the world. You can get it from geology, which a lot of people do, and you can get it from the Bible. And I'm going to tell you this because I think it's kind of important to say this. Until about the early 1700s, which was at the age of enlightenment, the Renaissance period, prior to 1700, do you know that hardly anyone ever considered the earth to be millions of years old? Not even hundreds of thousands of years old. Just about everybody accepted the idea that the earth was fairly young. That's a relatively recent phenomenon and... Consider what it was coupled with. When you think about the Age of Enlightenment, when you think about the Renaissance period, what that began was this denial of a supreme being, a supreme creator. And once you say, we don't want to answer to that creator, now you have to come up with an alternate way to explain the origin of the earth. If you follow what the Bible says, it's pretty simple. The earth is probably about 6,000 years old. Maybe a little bit more, But there's genealogies drawn for us in the Bible that go from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to Jesus, and then really Jesus to us. And each one of those is about 2,000 years. Now, is it possible that not every single person was listed in the geology or in the genealogy that goes from uh, Adam to Abraham? Maybe. Maybe there's a few more years in there. But but simply following scripture, you're looking at an earth that's about 6,000 years old. I know geology has come up with conclusions that are much different than that, but most of them can at least find their fulfillment in a catastrophic event that happened early in the world's existence called the flood. I have no idea how that all changed, but it really comes down to, I guess, this. Are we trusting man's imperfect ideas about how the world began and not just imperfect but often changing? Even in the course of my lifetime, The idea of the age of the earth has gone from millions of years to billions of years in a way to to try to explain away some of the changes that that happen. Or or do you simply say, there's somebody who is an eyewitness who wrote it down for us in his word. I can't convince you, I can't convince anybody else of the age of the earth. That's something that we accept by faith. By faith, we understand, the writer to the Hebrews said, that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. All right, I really think that that kind of led into that second question. So I never had thought about this before, so I really, really appreciate this question. If we would accept that the earth is millions and billions of years old, then it seems really foolish that God waited so long to send Jesus. 
right? If the world was really 4.5 billion years old, why did God wait till just 2,000 years ago before Jesus finally came? And the answer, I guess, to the question is found in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul just writes this, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God knew the right time to bring Jesus into this world. And so then the last question I think is really interesting. What about the people who were born or who lived before Jesus? And, and I understand where this question is coming from. The Thessalonians had some of the same questions for Paul. But it comes down to this. The way a person is saved was exactly the same in the Old Testament as it, as it is in the New Testament times. The only difference is the perspective. So in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read this about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham took God's promises, said, okay, God, I know you're going to do exactly what you said. And the promise was that he was going to be made into a great nation and all people on earth were going to be blessed through him because of the Messiah, the, the Savior. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes that in Romans chapter 4 and says the exact same thing, that we're justified, we're declared not guilty in the same way as Abraham. So here, here, I'll make it as simple as I can. If you, I don't, can I make a cross? If this is the cross, okay? Now I've got to do it from your perspective. If this is the Old Testament people over here, they looked ahead to Jesus coming. They believed in the same Messiah that we did. They just believed in one that hadn't come yet. That cross stays in the same place and now we're here on the New Testament side of the cross and we look back on the same event that they looked forward to that is the promise that God made that a Savior was going to come and now has come into this world to rescue us from sin. All right. Thoughts, comments about that one? Please, Caleb. Okay, so whether it's millions of years, thousands of years, at yeah. the end of the day, like, I feel like it doesn't really matter, right? Like, I mean, as long as you believe in Jesus... It doesn't explicitly say in the Bible, so I just feel like it doesn't really matter. So I, I, would, I, would, I would say, as far as saving faith goes, believing in Jesus as the Savior from sin is what matters. But I do think what happens is if you say that God's word isn't the truth everywhere, then you can take any page out of God's word, right? If I'm going to say, I don't believe the Bible's account that the world was created in six days, then what's to stop you from saying, well, then I don't believe this page of the Bible or that page of the Bible either. And I think that's where it becomes important. So I, I think I would be careful not to say it doesn't matter. I agree with what you said, which is a very good comment. What matters as far as whether we go to heaven or not is do we believe in Jesus as Savior? Very true. And I think it's, it's in the end, that same faith that believes in Jesus as Savior then wants to take everything that God says in, in his word and say, how do I believe everything that, that God, God has written? But thank you for making that point. That was a good point. Luke, please. There's a book called Coming to Grips with Genesis that addresses questions about can we reconcile yeah. Darwinian evolution and or millions of years with the text of Genesis 1 through 11. So yeah. that book is called Coming to Grips with Genesis and those authors answer that question, no, they can't be reconciled. Yeah. So Coming to Grips with, with uh, Genesis is what it's called. Yep. Uh, there's 
I mean, if you've ever been, I don't know if any of you have been to Kentucky and gone to either the Creation Museum or the Ark Encounter, uh, but Answers in Genesis is the organization that uh, is kind of behind those two things. Some good answers on their website, too, just about all of these questions. They get more scientific than I'm going to get into tonight, so if you have, want to do additional reading, those are good places to go. Thank you. All right, let's move on to number four. Can dreams have spiritual significance? Can they tell us about spiritual things or the future, etc.? Um, I guess the easy answer to this is, sure, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I think about this. So Peter, as he spoke his Pentecost sermon, he based his Pentecost sermon on Joel chapter 2, which says this, In the last days, your old men will see visions, your young men will dream dreams. I can't tell you exactly what that means, but I can't discount the fact that God might still speak to you through dreams. I'm just going to caution you because I don't think he has to. I know he doesn't have to because he's given his entire word that we have, that we get to go and see. And finally, the Bible says faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. It doesn't say, look for dreams because that's how God's going to speak to you. Having said that, I think you probably know, I think if I counted right, I tried to count them up, there's over 20. There's over 20 people who received dreams from God that had special significance that God spoke to them through dreams. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you that it's not possible. I'm just saying I don't think it's the right place for you to be looking for God to communicate with you because he's given us his full word. When most of those dreams happen, and the majority of them are in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have scriptures to refer to. And so God spoke to them and directed their lives through dreams. I think about Joseph and how much his life revolved around dreams, whether they were his own dreams or the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and, or not Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh. And then later, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had all of those dreams that, that talked about the future. Um, uh, it, one of my favorites, I don't know if we even need to talk too much about this, but Gideon, if you ever want to read just kind of an amazing way that God speaks through dreams, read the story of Gideon. Because Gideon's not sure if he should attack the Midianites and God says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the Midianite camp and just listen to what they're saying. And Gideon and a, and a servant go down to the camp and just as they arrive at the camp, a guy is telling his friend, hey, I had a dream last night and this big loaf of bread rolled into camp and destroyed our tents. That was the dream he had. A big loaf of bread rolled into camp and destroyed the tents. And his friend says this, that can be nothing other than Gideon who's going to destroy us because God is on his side. And you just go, wait, what? <laughs> who, who has a dream about a, a, a loaf of bread rolling into camp and then comes to the conclusion that it must be Gideon who's going to destroy them? So that's the kind of dreams that God gave. He, 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 he was al allowed people to see the blessings that, that he wanted to bring. All right, any more on that one? That was a good question. I think, again, I think people like... That idea of, oh, there's a special way that God might communicate with me. And again, I can't discount that he might do that, but just know that what he really wants to tell you is found in his word. All right, number, f <laughs> number five, I did put this in there just for fun. Can you do the worm for us? And my answer to that is, I can, but not right now. Someday I will, okay? Some of you know, I probably have seen me do it. I know some people sitting right there have seen me do it because I did it at a wedding not too long. <laughs> Not too long ago, but um, we'll, 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 do, we'll do that another time. All right, number six. Number six. Why do we pray? 
Uh, since God's will is already set and his plans can't be stopped, how are we as human beings able to influence the Almighty? I love this question because I just want to flip it around a little bit. It, it isn't that we're trying to direct God to do what he wants. Uh, prayer is an act of worship. It's us saying to God, you've invited us. You have amazingly invited us to bring our prayers to you and you take those prayers into account as you rule the universe. Uh, that's where the worship comes in. That's why we pray, your will be done. Because we know that God's will is better than our own. There's a, there's a verse in, in James chapter 5 that, that just has such deep meaning behind it where James says this, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. For whatever reason, the master of the universe, the one who created all things, wants to hear what you have to say. He wants to listen to what, and he invites you. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. So yes, God wants us to pray. And he even takes those prayers into account as he rules the universe. It's just an amazing privilege that God has given us. Since Jesus has removed the barrier of sin, uh, he invites us to have access to the Father uh, through, uh, through, through that work of, of salvation that he accomplished. All right, that was a quick one, but I like it. All right, number seven, love this question. I don't know who put this in there, but I love this question because it is a, it's an opportunity to talk about how connotation of words makes a difference in our English language today and trying to understand an Old Testament concept in terms of the way that we think and the way that, that we uh, approach things. So here, here's the question. Relating to Exodus 21, 21, and I'm going to back up to verse 20 just so you can see a little bit of the context. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. Okay, so here's the question. As I understand it, this comes from Old Testament law. It makes it seem like God condoned viewing another person as property. Is there a context I'm missing? And the answer to the question is yes. Okay, I would love for all of you, when you get a chance, to read all of chapter 21. Because Exodus 21 is an amazing, I suppose, God's commentary on civil rights. It's a civil rights document that was way ahead of its time. So I'm going to start with the word slavery. Because you and I have a connotation of slavery that simply didn't exist in Bible times. People were not sold into slavery against their will. People were not forced into slavery against their will. Generally, the way people became slaves, we might call them today indentured servants. They fell into debt. They couldn't pay their debts. And so they worked off their debts with slavery. The very first verse of chapter 21 says this. If somebody becomes a servant, they can only be a servant for six years. And in the seventh year, they have to be freed. It doesn't matter what their debt is. It doesn't matter if they paid it off. God has this idea it, that's all worked into all of these verses in, in Exodus 21 of protection. Of protection for even, even for people who in Moses' day would have been considered property. And I think I want to just kind of touch on that word too, the word property in, in the original. Um, because it isn't, about, it isn't about possession or ownership as much as it is about the way it would affect the owner. So the more punishment that an owner of, of, it would inflict on a servant, the more he's actually hurting himself. That's really what it's saying. So if I'm 
punishing or harming the person who's supposed to be serving me. In the end, if he can't work, who am I really hurting? I'm hurting me, right? And so God puts these layers of protection. It's why I went back to verse 20 because an owner gets punished if they do something that causes an injury to the servant that's serving them. If you read that whole chapter, there's all kinds of provisions in there for how uh, servants would gain their freedom, how they could gain their freedom. And, and God has this built into the law code, the civil law that he gave to the people of Israel that kept them separate from all other nations to protect all people. Uh, and it's pretty amazing, actually. I know the New Testament also talks about slavery and, and this idea that somehow that means that the Bible condones slavery. Not at all. What the Bible is demonstrating is that there was a real, a real thing that existed both in Moses' day and in Paul's day and God addresses how that should be carried out. So think in, in terms of this in Ephesians chapter 6, God talks both to the owners and then the servants and he speaks about how they can make their relationship work and it's when the owners aren't harsh and it's when the servants are working as if they're working for God and not for a human master. And again, that, that working together, it follows on the heels of the relationship between husband and wife and parents and children and how those relationships are supposed to be mutually beneficial for, for both sides. All right, I don't know who asked that question. Follow up on that. Somebody want to talk? We're almost to the end. Just have two more questions. Okay. Excellent. Um, I'm going to do this one first because it came in late. It says this, how do you pick up and ask a girl at church out for a date? It's a very legitimate question. It's going to lead us into question number eight a little bit too. Um, I don't think I'm the right person to answer that question. Because I probably have about a hundred Christian pickup lines that you don't want to use any of them because they probably won't work, just so you know. I mean, you know, if you want to try them, you're more than welcome to. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not usually prophetic, you could say, but I can see you and me together. You know, that's one that you could use. Or, you know, I, I know you have Jesus in your heart, but is there room for me too? I mean, just, there's things that you can certainly say if you want. I, I don't know. I, I guess my answer would be, you just take the chance and say, hey, you know, I don't know. That's as good as I'm going to do. All right, let's finish up with question number eight. It's a, it, this is a deep question, question number eight, and it takes a lot of time uh, maybe to go through. I, I'm going to summarize it in four points, and then I'll give you some resources that I think are, are good resources for uh, this question. Could you summarize what 1 Corinthians 7 has to say about marriage versus singleness? Do you have a good resource to point us to for studying this chapter in depth? Um, I, I, I did a lot of searching today to see if there's one source that just covers this one chapter in detail and I, and I have one suggestion and, and then a couple others that are at least going to touch on it. But, but I'll just say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you wanted a theme for 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it would be this, should I marry or shouldn't I? Should I get married or not? And so the first thing I think is important to say is if you, you read through 1 Corinthians 7, what you're going to realize is some of Paul's advice that is given in 1 Corinthians 7 is given because, as he says it in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 7, there's a crisis that's going on in Corinth at the time. He doesn't tell us what that is, but it's pretty obvious that the Corinthians know what it is. So because of the present crisis, Paul says. And so his advice at the beginning of the chapter is if you're single, it's okay, even good, to stay single. 
I think that applies to today. There's nothing wrong with being single. It's very much a healthy thing. Um, But then he goes on to point two, and point two is, but it's better to marry than to fall into sexual immorality. So, again, I know that sounds really easy that if I'm tempted by certain sins that I could just run off and find the first person who wants to marry me. I know it doesn't quite work that way. But again, that's Paul's encouragement to avoid sexual immorality, to, to marry rather than burn with passion is what he says in verse 9. Then you should seek a spouse if that's something that's going to be difficult. The third point he makes is really this is all about self-control. Sometimes we call it the gift of Paul. He was a single man. He had that gift of self-control. But I think Paul would even say that self-control applies to marriage too. Like if you're married, uh, still practice self-control even in marriage. And then the final point he makes, and this takes up almost the whole last part of the chapter, is if you are married, stay married. Okay, I know that sounds really easy, but he's talking about mixed marriages. And what I mean by that is when the truth of the gospel came to Corinth, what happened sometimes is that one of the two spouses would come to faith and the other one would not. And so the question the Corinthians had, what are we supposed to do? If we have an unbelieving spouse and we're now believers, does that mean our marriage should end? And Paul says, no. If the unbeliever is willing to stay, then stay because who knows what kind of effect you might have on them. Now, if the unbeliever says, I'm done with this, I can't do it and packs up and leaves, Paul says, then a Christian person is not bound in those circumstances. Sometimes maybe you learn that as desertion. But in the end, that's Paul's advice. If you're single, it's good to stay single. If you're married, stay married. And, and there's, again, lots of other layers to that. But resources that I would have for you, if you're familiar with the People's Bible, and if you're not, I have them all in my office. You're welcome to borrow one anytime you want. The People's Bible is a series of books that were written by Lutheran pastors that take the text of the Bible and then have little paragraphs of explanation after each couple of verses. And the pastor who wrote the 1 Corinthians 1 does a very nice job of just kind of laying out what is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you want to research further, uh, that's a great one. I also have a book that is called the People's Bible Teaching Series that's called Marriage and Family. Spends two pretty good chapters on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then earlier this year, I think back in October, we had uh, Hannah Hannah Schirmerhorn come and she talked about uh, only a single life. Uh, that is a tremendous resource for just thinking about what singleness is all about and what's marriage all about. And I would recommend uh, reading that too. I have copies of that in my office. If you'd ever like to have one, you're welcome to one. Uh, just come talk to me. I'm happy to give you one. All right, guess what? We made it to the end. Thanks for all the great questions. Not too bad. We're only a few minutes over. Let's have a brief prayer. And one of the things, nobody asked a question about this, but I know that Anybody who's on campus at the University of Wisconsin probably knows some of the things that have gone on over the course of the last 24 hours uh, with the TikTok post that happened and the uh, calls for uh, the expulsion of a certain student who had some very racially charged things to say on TikTok. Um, There's just, I'm so sad. I'm so sad, first of all, that somebody thought they had to do that. And if that's really how they think, if that's really what they believe, then that's even more sad. But equally sad to me 
is some of the hatred then that gets spewed from the other side. And if there would only just be an opportunity to have peace, uh, I understand that there should be repercussions for someone who, who has, uh, you know, racially charged things that they post for everybody to see. But as Christians, uh, we listen to what God says in, in Romans chapter 12 to us, and he just says this, as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And how we can show the love of God even in some very difficult situations, I guess that's a good thing for us to pray for before we sing our last song. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to dig into your word tonight as we think about these difficult questions that, that come to us. We, we pray for your guidance and an extra measure of your Holy Spirit to understand the more difficult truths of Scripture. Help us to see the blessings that you bring us every single day through the salvation that is ours in Jesus. And lead us to bring our requests and, and concerns and worries to you, knowing that you care for us. We ask you, Lord, to bring peace to the situation on campus. Uh, we know, Lord, that that kind of hatred, there's no place for that. There's no place for, for judging people by, by the color of their skin or by their station in life. We also know, Lord, that, that we also want to show love in all circumstances. We ask you to let uh, the wisdom of, of the love that you have for us touch our hearts so that we, in turn, deal with one another in love. We can speak the truth and we can speak it in love as we honor you and the love that you had for us, have for us first. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.